Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, September 19th, uh, 2018. It is September, only mid-September, but it is flu vaccine season. So um, the first, I think, employer is at public flu clinic is this afternoon, or today, all day. Started. Some may have already gotten. I think Bridget got it. Good, Sam. Thank you. And Dr. and Bridget um, Mudge. Welcome back again, Bridget. Has <laughs> gotten hers. You're never going to retire, really. So, um, so it's my pleasure to um, to introduce for someone who's been invited, actually by a number of our faculty members, um, Dr. Nett, but Dr. Braga has been trying to recruit Dr. Rudolph to come here for a number of years, and she's visited with Dr. Shubkin and Dr. House, uh, Dr. Jenny Rudolph who is um, the director, the executive director of the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston, um, uh, Massachusetts. A, um, and she has quite a diverse CV um, compared to our typical Grand Round speaker, but she is a, a graduate, undergraduate of Harvard College and uh, obtained her PhD at the Boston College Carroll School of Management. She continues to be active in the Department of Anesthesia at Harvard Medical School as well as Massachusetts General Hospital, where she holds an assistant clinical professorship. Uh, she has been an invited speaker nationally, internationally at um, conferences and meetings, which are too numerous to count and are mostly societies that many of us probably would never be attending other than the Society for Simulation and Medicine. Many management conferences and national and international groups uh, are around um, her areas of expertise. Yet her CV has greater than 50 peer-reviewed um, articles and journals that many of us would recognize and read, inclusive of JAMA Pediatrics and others, in addition to another 20 chapters and monographs. And in my brief meeting with uh, Dr. Rudolph this morning, she promises a highly interactive session and has already had an opportunity to interact with our faculty and trainees. So um, after, I think, many years of attempting, uh, welcome welcome back to the Upper Valley. Um, Jenny spent time as a rower and uh, growing up in Barnard, so this is not, this is a bit of a homecoming. Welcome back. Let Thank me get you your so projector. Much, Keith. Hello, everybody. How am I sound-wise? Okay, great. So um, I'd like to just add a couple things to what Keith shared uh, with you about me so you can decide whether to believe anything I say today. So my history is I am an organizational behavior scholar, and I started my research and teaching around learning from accident and error in high-hazard industries like nuclear power and chemical processing. And what I got really interested in there was that it's the quality of conversations that we have with each other, our ability to speak up, our ability to tolerate spicy feedback, our ability to be spoken up to, that tends to have a really big impact on whether, for example, the nuclear power plant has a sort of punitive culture that shuts down error reporting, or it has a culture that learns from its own mistakes. And so from that, and Keith mentioned my background in, in, in rowing, I'm a lifelong athlete. And I noticed in crew, actually rowing right here on the Connecticut River, that I'd get videoed. And then we'd go back to the boathouse, and the video review would occur. And I'd get feedback. And I thought, geez, what if we could like practice stuff that really matters, uh, like difficult conversations or medical procedures or whatever. So that's how I drifted via a number of years into working at the Center for Medical Simulation. And what we do there 
is we primarily serve the four Harvard teaching hospitals, primarily acute care, teamwork and communication in the perioperative emergency ICU type setting. And so what I think about every day is how do we have difficult conversations either at end of life or with uh, families of critically ill patients or among ourselves to negotiate under time pressure. Uh, this patient is bleeding out. How are we going to get the massive transfusion protocol uh, uh, activated and get the stuff done we need to get done? So a couple years ago, maybe, I started talking with the PEDS department at MGH, and they had asked me to come and give a talk on feedback, and which is sort of one of my main areas of interest. And I said, hey, you know, we, we've done that before. What is your biggest pain in the derriere right now in terms of communication in the department? And they said, we're really struggling with autonomy. How do we, as uh, attendings, give enough autonomy to the residents? How do we collaborate with the nurses and vice versa? And so I reached out to Sydney and um, Kathy and Carol Lynn and some others and said, you know, would that resonate here? And they said yes. So that's what we're going to be talking about today, negotiating autonomy at point of care. And I'm going to try to make a case for why this is interesting and important. The other thing I'm going to do is I've, kind of, I've asked Sydney, and she's kindly asked, uh, offered to help me out, and Kathy, because I really think what I'm talking about needs to connect to your context to some degree. So they're going to try to help me with that. The other thing I'd like to say is I'm likely to make a couple mistakes. Maybe I won't be clear. Something I say won't resonate for you. Please, please speak up. Help me make this as useful and better for you as possible. So just a couple disclosures. Unfortunately, I am not on any wealthy boards and do not get any excellent payments from any drug makers. However, the center that I direct does offer tuition granting, CME granting courses on the kinds of topics we offer here. So I have an interest in being successful in this talk in that way. So that could potentially be a competing interest. I just also wanted to re-recognize the help I got here from the team, the help from the Harvard Peds, and then I've been working with some colleagues in Australia also on this subject. So at the end of this workshop, since I'm an educationalist and an um, experiential educationalist, there's a couple things I'm hoping you're going to walk away with. So the irreverent idea that when you think, WTF are they thinking about your colleagues, that you would be able to flip that to what's their frame. And I put this in this somewhat irreverent way, but I want to let you know this is based on probably 10 years of thinking and research that I've done and analyses of how do we actually accomplish behavior change. And one of the things is resetting ourselves internally. So that's thing one I'm hoping you'll entertain today. Two is I, I hope you're going to get a sense of how we talk to each other accretes and builds up into what's it like to work here or work anywhere. So culture, conversation drives culture. That's the second thing I'm hoping you'll be leaving thinking about. And then lastly, I'm going to be very practical because I'm a simulationista and I like applied learning. I'm hoping you'll leave with a, an awareness of how to manage what we're going to call autonomy glitches, which is where you'd like to zig, but your attending tells you to zag, and you're like, no, that's not the way I wanted to do it. I thought I was going to get to manage this patient, or vice versa. So I need your help. Um, I know many grand rounds 
Um, the person standing down here is the most emotionally activated, and they have the autonomic nervous system cranking. You can hear it a little bit in my voice right now. And you guys are sitting there drinking coffee and relaxing. Um, and so I'm hoping that we can mix up the activation a little bit today, which is I'm going to ask if you'd be willing to possibly do some bursts of discussion in duos or trios, whether you'd be willing to reflect on your own experience a little bit in terms of having these conversations, and then I'm going to ask if you'd be willing to try some techniques out uh, working with each other. So how do those sound as a learning contract? Thank you. Okay, fantastic. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to ask Sydney to come up here with me and help us get oriented to a task, which is I'm going to ask you to watch a video, and Sydney will tell you a little bit more, but we'd like you to remember a situation where you were negotiating with someone around uh, clinical management of a patient. If you don't do that so much anymore, maybe it could be management of something else. Maybe it's with your spouse, you know, who's in charge of taking the car to the mechanic today. Um, and then we'd like you to share a brief de-identified de example, but Sydney's going to just help us uh, put this a little more in context, and we're going to give you an example. I can, oh, sure. Yeah, that works. Um, we'll just stand close together. So uh, sort of Jenny asked me to kind of come up with a situation where um, we might have a resident who is working on their own autonomy um, with an attending and where that might come up. I'm only going to talk for two seconds. It's okay. No worries. Um, and this sort of resonates with me especially because I just graduated from residency. So I have it very freshly in my mind um, feeling like a resident and feeling like, there are situations where I wanted a little bit more autonomy, and there were also situations in residency where I felt like maybe I needed a little more help. Um, so it's really a thing that's sort of close to my heart and um, has been in my mind a lot as well because I've also done some of my first attending time in the recent months. So kind of dealing with that and residents who used to be peers um, and figuring out autonomy with that sort of made a lot of sense for us to work together on this. Um, so this video, thanks to Jess and Sam who really did an awesome, all in one take, by the way. So that's just amazing. <laughs> Jess wanted to be here, but she's on nights, and she had a really rough night. So um, she's here in spirit. But um, the setting is sort of Jess is presenting a patient she just saw in the ER with bronchiolitis to Sam. Um, and you'll sort of see different ways that the um, encounter can kind of go and um, the ways that Sam interacts with her. And Great. That's that. Okay, thank yeah, you, Sydney. No problem. And uh, the, I think the Grammys are coming up relatively soon, right? So we can uh, have our own nomination here. Okay, so what I'm going to do is just play this video of, of Jessica presenting the patient to Sam. I'm going to pause right at the end of her presentation. And then what I'm going to ask you to do, if you would, is just using this as an example, uh, form yourself into a duo or a trio, and please share an example where you had an autonomy glitch, which is... You wanted to go one way as the attending. You were expecting the resident was going to manage the patient uh, with the blue procedure, and actually they decided to use the green procedure, and you're thinking to yourself as the attending, WTF, are you thinking? Or perhaps you were the resident or the nurse, and you had an idea about how you were going to manage the patient, and the attending came in and hip-checked you out of the way and took over the management of the patient. So you can be thinking about what kind of glitches you've experienced, and here's our starting example. Uh, guys, bear with me. We had a little technical difficulties, so I'm going to try my audio workaround here. 
foremost, I have a patient. Can I tell you about him? Yeah. Okay, great. So our patient is a 15-month-old male who's here for respiratory distress. And he came in after having some increased work of breathing yesterday and at home took a sibling's albuterol. Mom gave him a puff or two and felt like it helped. Then he went to sleep and this morning woke up a lot more respiratory distress, increased work of breathing, contractions and belly breathing, um, and a really severe cough. So parents brought him in. Um, he has no past medical history. He's otherwise healthy. And today, on exam, he's febrile and a bit tachycardic. Um, and really the only pertinence for his exam are that he um, has some increased work of breathing, has some um, subcostal and substernal attractions, and um, his breath sounds sound coarse throughout, but no wheezing. Other than that, heart sounds great, and um, nothing significant on exam. He looks pretty well hydrated. Okay, so... Hi, Dr. House. I'm sorry, bear with me. Okay, so if you could think of a recent autonomy glitch that you had, uh, the perfect one would have. Am I just hitting that? The perfect one would have a little heat behind it, so you were a little bit annoyed. Uh, it shouldn't be one where you've already decided that this person is uncoachable, unlearnable, whether up the hierarchy or down the hierarchy, but it should have a little bit of heat. So if you would think of one and then share in your duos or trios. Seen that side of it, obviously. To say, 
Okay, everybody. If I could uh, bring us back together. Giving us back is the harder part. Yeah. All right, everybody. So um, I wandered around a bit, and I, I detected that there was no shortage of um, WTF experiences, uh, and that it's very, very confusing when you think you have an agreement about something, or you think you're making a reasonable request, or you think you have a reasonable idea, and the other person just responds either the opposite of what you asked or something like that. So what I'd like to do now is normalize and explain this process and then put it into a step one of, of how do we think about this together. So um, one of the things, uh, actually I realized I forgot one thing. Uh, Kathy, I'm going to bring you up here in a second if you don't mind. Uh, before we go into understanding kind of the social psychology and, and cognition of what's going on behind our reactions and how do we get out of it, I asked uh, Kathy if she would just help me like Sydney, sort of put this in a little bit of context for us, for the department and for the work that we do. So, Kathy, I, I can click for you if you like. That'd be great. Okay. So go ahead and click through. So okay. I think um, regardless of where we practice in outpatient medicine, in the critical care setting, in the inpatient ward, we all have these negotiations about how much autonomy. Come on over here because I think that. How much autonomy to um, give the residents or the trainees as they come through our training program. Um, so we all have to collaborate on clinical management. When we had dinner last night, a couple of things that we realized is that, A, the definition changes depending on who you talk to. So when we say autonomy, I might not be speaking the same language as Sid, who might not be speaking the same language as Sevda in the back. And so we all have to be able to agree on what autonomy means. What we're not doing today is setting expectations or a learning contract in advance. So this is the resident who's coming into your rotation at the start of the rotation, and you're setting a learning contract or goals for the month. So we're not doing that today. What we are doing is clicking through and figuring out how to negotiate in the moment, just like the video that Jess and Sam did, where you're presenting, you're having a patient presented to you or you're presenting a patient, and you're really trying to negotiate within one to three minutes about what the next steps are. And then the second thing that we all discussed at dinner last night was that we really want to be able to label this negotiation for autonomy as a learning opportunity, that it is not something that is um, punitive, it is not something where I'm on your case because I don't like you. Um, this is really a learning opportunity, both for the resident or the trainee, as well as for the faculty member, so that we can get that better shared understanding of what autonomy means in a situation. Oh, and we're not doing that either, which is when a kid is crashing and they're bleeding out, like, just go take care of the patient at the end of the day. Okay. Great. Thank you so much. Okay. So, um, okay, so... What I was thinking, uh, based on my conversations with your colleagues last night at dinner and, and what I've talked about with my colleagues at MGH PEDS to some degree and my other colleagues in, in Australia, is when we're talking about negotiating autonomy, in some ways what we're really talking about is negotiating interdependence. So I think in the olden days, when uh, the um, House of God was written or the making of a surgeon was written by Bill Nolan, autonomy was like an autonomous car, like leave me the heck alone, I'm going to manage this patient by myself, you stay home attending, don't bug me. 
Um, and I think that what we are talking about now is in a, in a context of increasing um, regulation, increasing requirements from ACGME, increasing requirements from ACCME, everybody's got a lot more uh, people looking over their shoulders, not just the residents and the nurses, but the attendings themselves. And so I'd like to frame the idea of thinking about autonomy as a continuum. It's not like I'm on my own and I get to make my own decisions all by myself, or I don't. Rather, how am I interdependent with others such that we can have the best possible clinical plan? And as our work becomes increasingly team-based, increasingly interprofessional, to me this makes a lot of sense. The other connection I'd like to make here is I'm going to put out the hypothesis that if we can all get better at negotiating interdependence in clinical care plans, provider to provider, that is a form of shared decision making. And that will strengthen our muscles for shared decision making with our patients because we're going to be interested in what is she thinking, what is he thinking, and how do I collaborate. So what does that take? What does that look like? So why I think this is incredibly important, as I said at the very beginning, is Individual conversations drive learning culture. So when I don't speak up because I see a problem, I start strengthening a culture of silence and fear. When I do speak up when I see a problem, I start strengthening a culture of openness about error and learning from that. And so individual negotiations, in my view, drive culture. So conversations drive culture how we negotiate for interdependence, how we collectively decide we're going to manage this patient, drives a culture of learning is the hypothesis I'd like to put out for your consideration. And what this looks like is you think of each little micro-conversation as a fractal, so that very tiny first iteration builds up into another, builds up into another, builds up into another. So we'd like to end up with a fractally built learning culture that's open about mistakes caring about people, where we care personally and challenge directly, hold high standards and hold high regard. So each micro-conversation embeds those little values is the kind of goal I'm thinking about here. So how do we do that? Step one is you've got to manage yourself. So when you think WTF about what somebody else has done, that is socially normal and uh, a, a part of cognition that we're wired to do. So what happens is if I'm driving into work and somebody cuts me off and I'm late for my meeting with Keith, I think, WTF, what a jerk. The next day, I'm driving into work again, and since I missed my meeting with Keith yesterday, I, he kindly rescheduled with me, and I'm driving in and somebody else is a little bit ahead of me and I zipped in front of them and I cut them off and they're stuck at the light this time instead of me. But I'm not a jerk, it's my circumstances. I had a very important meeting with Keith. So one of the things that we know about social cognition is when somebody else makes a mistake, we are wired to assume it is their bad character and internal uh, failings. When we make a mistake, we are wired to interpret that as our circumstances. There's a good reason why. So we are, uh, step one in this WTF to WTF process is sort of reframing yourself. Why this is so important is, and there's just some wonderful recent research that I think came out of Danny Kahneman's lab, the recent uh, Nobel laureate, 
finding that at the very minute we need to be skeptical and hold our diagnosis of the other person as an idiot lightly, we are wired to be more certain. So at the very moment when it would behoove us to be skeptical about the colleague who managed the patient in the way we thought really they really shouldn't have, uh, and we think they're a jerk and we think they're an idiot, that's actually the moment when we most need to be skeptical about our thinking. So the problem here is, especially if you care about the patient, you've now got an amygdala-fueled, um, cognitively uh, distorted view of what the other person is doing. And so you're just like that jet taking off. You're sure you're right, and you just forget to even see them and collaborate with them and find out what they're thinking. So step one of this conversations that drive culture about openness is managing that set of reactions in yourself. And so what we've started talking about that as react, reset, get curious, because you are going to react. That's normal. You need to have a way to reset. I suspect you guys have expert resetting tools because you deal with critically ill kids all the time. That's got to require some management of stress on your part. So there's some things that you do internally to help yourself get reset. So manage yourself is part one. <clears throat> So, and the way you could summarize that for the work we're going to be doing today is when you think, what the F are they doing, flip that to use your calm yourself down technique to what's their frame. One of the things that um, we've done in our simulation work, and I'm just giving this as an example. Maybe there are others that you use, and I recommend uh, embedding this, is in simulation, we frequently see people, for example, give Lasix to a patient who's already hypotensive because they think she sounds wet and they don't recognize that actually it's sepsis and she's third spacing and she needs a lot of fluid. So if I have set up a simulation where that diagnostic error is possible and probable, it would be most unfair of me to think, WTF, what an idiot, because I created the simulation. So instead, we try to do something like this. We think everybody here is intelligent, capable, trying to do their best and wants to improve. So this is part of resetting your view of the other person. You might hear this and think to yourself, oh, that's just very sweet, Jenny. How, how lovely, how, how touchy-feely. I'm not going to think that about my colleagues. Well, so maybe you could think something else, which is, like me, I'm trained in statistics because I have to do social science, and you guys probably have to read clinical papers. So you know about confidence intervals. So perhaps there's a 5% chance you're wrong, that that person is a complete idiot, and you are going to put 100% of your effort behind that 5% that you could be wrong and try to figure out what are they thinking. So back to our heroes, uh, Jessica and uh, Sam. We're now going to think a little bit about what were they thinking. And the point here is to watch the video again, and you're going to see in part one of the video, uh, Sam's going to jump right in and tell Jessica how to manage this patient. And then in part two, you're going to see a different world where Jessica presents the patient and says to Sam, what do you think I should do? In both these cases, if we're thinking about learning conversations, if Jessica's worked up the whole patient, seems to know the signs and symptoms, seems to know what's going on, and then Sam jumps in and tells her what to do, Jessica might be thinking, WTF, Sam, I worked her up. Give me a chance here. 
Or, similarly, if Jessica works her up, presents everything, and then says to Sam, what do you think I should do? Sam might be thinking, WTF, Jessica, you just worked her up. What do you think you should do? So what, what I'd like you to do is watch these little clips, and then we're going to go back into our duos and trios, and I'm going to ask this side of the room if you would kindly think about four or five good reasons why Jessica, the resident, is asking what she should do. And on this side of the room, if I could ask you to come up with four or five good reasons why Sam is telling her what to do. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to flip ourselves to what is their frame, what are they thinking, what's the good reason for doing, for, for why they did what they did. should you choose to accept it, is on this side, please. Jessica presented the patient and then asks Dr. House, asks Dr. Sam, what should I do? And let's presume Sam's thinking, you're about to have to manage this kind of patient by yourself in like one year. Why are you asking me? Tell me what you think the plan is. So why is Jessica asking what to do? What are five or six, three or four great reasons why she might be asking? So we're giving her the benefit of the doubt, but we're trying to understand her interests, her underlying goals. And this side, you would try to figure out why did Sam House provide the plan without checking in with Sam, uh, Jessica or whatever. Sam House's character, let me say. <laughs> that, that's her alter ego. Yeah. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
of uh, some of the different things that came up. If, if anybody on this side would be willing to share, what, what, were your, what was on your differential diagnosis for what was driving Jess to ask? There's no one right answer here. Jess an expert, an international expert on this topic. Okay, she wants a subject matter expertise. Two possibilities. I've come up with a plan before, and then my attending runs right over it anyway, so I'm just going to skip that painful moment. Okay. Unsure uh, of herself? Uh, she really didn't know exactly how to manage the. Well, she's reasonably sure of herself, but, but is at a stage where she wants to reinforce um, you know, six months from now I'm going to be doing this. I know what I'd want to do, but I want to reality test that that's what I should do. Great. So she, Keith is, has a very subtle point here, in my view, which is. She wants to reality test her thinking with Sam, the attending, which seems like a really great idea. 
And what we talked about at dinner with Kathy and, and Carol Lynn and others was, how do we create a context where she could say aloud what Keith just said, which is, hey, I, I have a plan. I'm not positive it's right. Can I road test it with you? And so that's where the um, culture, conversation drives culture uh, thing starts to take root is if people do say things like that and then the attending responds well or vice versa. It can also just be her personality. Some people are extroverts and others are introverts and they're not as ready to give an opinion unless asked. Right. And, and again, that's where I think the muscle building for shared decision making is so crucial, which is, you know, I'm actually, uh, this will be shocking to you, somewhat of an introvert. <laughs> but as a manager and as a presenter, I've had to really get over that. And I think as a provider who has to work with patients and narrate my thinking and let them know where I'm going and then collaborate, I may be introverted, but I still have to do my CrossFit on my thinking aloud to, to get that shared. Uh, Keith and Kathy? We, had, we almost added, a, we thought we had another part of the differential which was like that same conversation, but it's at a, a next level where um, Jessica knew it was right, but there's not one right way, and what you're doing during, what you have as an opportunity during training is to pick and choose various parts and pieces from different other colleagues and attendings, and there are ways of approaching it. So it would be the same thing. Here's what I want to do and I'm going to do, but I want to I want to pick your brain on what other things you might do. Not that we're going to do it. Not that yours is the right way, but yours is one of the ways that I want to peel some of my bag of tricks from. Great. So if we do articulate plans and put them out as one of many, then the the duo can kick those around as possibilities. And I think one thing that we were talking about, which Catherine alluded to, is that we are a small community and a small program. And so there are seven interns, four hospitalist attendings, and maybe Jessica had gotten shot down the first time over something completely different or a different scenario where she was more unsure of the differential diagnosis or the management plan. Um, and we then go into the next encounter with very clear, with very preconceived notions about either what our attending is going to do or what our learner is going to do. And because we're so small and intimate, we really have these... It, it, we really have to reset sometimes, depending on the scenario, depending on the case, depending on the circumstance. Yeah, so can, I see you, Allie. Uh, connecting to the conversation drives culture loop, that's a little micro, micro version, which is if I present, I get shot down, then the next time I'm going to be less likely to present. And so I love your idea, Kathy, of we have to be conscious both as learners and, and, and educators of giving an opportunity to somehow reset and have beginner's mind about each other or something. Helene and I talked about that, that the day before Jessica had a bad experience presenting a plan to a different attending, same attending, what, what have you, who knows, maybe. And so it was being extra cautious. Or yesterday or three days ago, she had a bad experience with a similar patient. Great. And so any of those drivers that she's currently keeping a mystery from Sam House's character is now out of the learning conversation instead of Allie, you know, sharing any of that, which would have really helped Sam's character guide her. So over to this side of the room, what were some of the drivers that you hypothesized might make it make an act of genius that Sam House gave the plan right away? Sam House's character, I want to keep saying. <laughs> <clears throat> One thing 
thing we discussed was that maybe this is like the fourth bronchiolytic they've talked about that night and they've had that conversation three times. Absolutely. Great. So context really, really matters. That's great. Sam's late to pick up the girls from school. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Again, a different context. We had talked about um, maybe sort of a feeling on Sam's character side of not wanting to put Jessica on the spot or sort of feel like, you know, she was quote unquote pimping her yeah. or something. Yep. So again, that's keeping half of my dialogue, my internal dialogue as the educator out of it, which is, hey, listen, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I think it would be valuable if we work this out together, so why don't you tell me how far you've gotten, and then I'll help you. Um, one more, or two more, yeah. We felt like it could go either way, either there's like a sense of camaraderie that's so much that, oh yeah, we already, we know, we both know what the plan is, so here it is, I'm going to say it is like on one end of the spectrum, and the other end is, I know that you have no idea what to do, so here's the plan. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it's like it's hard to tell from this scenario if you don't know where either of them are coming from, but they're both sort of like a cognitive area that you can make. Right, so I love that you've created that continuum. I think that's very helpful for us to think about where are we on that. Sir? We didn't speak about this with our group, but there's a systemic change that's occurred over the past decades, and that is the institution and the national regulations require attendings to be much more involved and responsible. And I think that in the past, interns and residents owned the patient. And when you interfered, you often got slapped on the hand as, a, as an attending. This is my patient, and I'm going to do it this way. They had to negotiate with others, but there is a much greater responsibility now. And with that comes... Uh, uh, less autonomy for the interns. Right? Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting shift over the last three decades. Um, <clears throat> okay. So, I'd like to just give you a little micro-tutorial on negotiation for a moment, and then come back to our heroes, Sam's character and Jessica's character. So as you may know, uh, there's win-win negotiation, win-lose negotiation. The formal terms in the literature, in case you want to look it up, is integrative bargaining versus distributive bargaining. Why is this important? In the integrative bargaining framework, or win-win framework, the idea is there's an expanding pie. And so if I come up with a creative way to manage this kid with bronchiolitis, for example, that isn't quite how you would do it, but uh, it meets the needs of the other, uh, of the attending, we'll be able to sort of come up with something creative and nobody's gonna feel like they didn't win or didn't get their way. So in, a, in an expanding pie world, we try to find out what the other person is thinking because if we understand that deeply, we may in fact be able to come up with an even more optimal solution than we thought initially. So how does that become possible? So let's say that um, uh, Sam, ha Sam House's character says, uh, she didn't, but let's say she said, uh, I think we're gonna give some albuterol to this patient and we're gonna give some fluids and we're gonna do this and that. And let's just say Jessica's 
uh, character thinks, wait a minute, I just read five papers. We're not supposed to give albuterol anymore for, to kids with bronchiolitis. I wonder what she's thinking. And so she says to Sam, hey, Sam, I hear you suggesting after I've presented this patient that we're going to give some albuterol. You know, what up? And so then Sam might reveal her underlying interest, which is, let's say she knows something about this patient that just missed that actually there is also a history of asthma or there's some history of reactive airway disease or there's some way that this drug is albuterol somehow indicated, but just didn't know it. So by asking, um, asking Sam what she thinks, she might get at it. So all we hear from each other in these negotiations is what's above the waterline, our position. I'm going to give this drug or I'm going to give that drug. I'm moving them to the ICU or I'm not moving to the ICU. Why did you call me about that patient before you worked them up? You're wasting my time. That's a position. What we don't know is what is the underlying interests, and that's why starting to narrate our thinking with each other and or investigate our thinking with each other can move us to some better solutions. The problem is, is often very difficult because of that WTF feeling. So generally, I, myself, since I cut the person off because I was on a rush to get to my meeting with Keith. I'm on the side of the angels. I have a good reason for doing what I'm doing, but you who cut me off yesterday, you're an idiot. So we tend to get stuck in being able to figure out what the other person's interests are by our wiring to assume that the other person is, doesn't have a good um, reason. So let me just play out what this would look like in a non-clinical example. So in my uh, near my town, there's a restaurant called Rialto in Cambridge. Maybe some of you have been to it. So imagine Jody, uh, the uh, lead chef, goes in at the end of the night to make her signature duck l'orange. She reaches out her hand. There's one orange left. And at the same moment, her pastry chef comes in to make her signature um, uh, orange meringue pie, reaches out her hand. They both land on this last orange of the night. And they kind of look at each other sadly, and they shrug their shoulders, and they like cut it in half, and they each get half of the orange. Well, it was really too bad that they didn't ask each other what they were doing and find out what were the underlying interests, because Jody only needed the juice of the orange to make the duck l'orange, and the pastry chef only needed the zest of the orange to make the lemon meringue pie. So they both could have had 100% of what they wanted exactly right. And so if you apply this to the clinical environment, like let's say that um, one person wants to give albuterol, but the other person just wants to give fluids, a compromise would be like, we're going to give half the albuterol dose and we're going to give half the fluid dose. <laughs> that would be a compromise, which we're all laughing because it's stupid. So part of what we want to get at here is getting ourselves reset internally from WTF to what's your frame. And the reason we want to find out their frame is because maybe we can come up with an optimized win-win solution to manage the patient. So if we can go back to our uh, heroes, Jessica's character and, and Sam's character, we know what their stated positions were. Sam stated we're going to manage the patient like this, and she stated the plan without checking in with Jessica. And Jessica asked for a plan. So we know what they did, but we don't know what their underlying interests were. You guys tried to guess a little bit a few minutes ago. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to take the next step here with you in our last five minutes. So on the back side of the paper that I handed out, there's a little cognitive aid. 
I'd like to say two words about this cognitive aid and then invite you to try it. So in my world, uh, organizational behavior, we have a, probably a 60-year research program looking at um, productive conversations. And one of the things we found is most of us either advocate, 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 try to convince. So let's say I'm trying to convince Matt of the merits of um, bolusing up this kid with some fluids, and Matt doesn't think that's a good idea, so then I might go and I say, well, I just read in JAMA, blah, 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 and I think we should do this, and Matt's like, nah. And so I'm like, well, have you seen the recent study uh, from JAMA Pediatrics, blah, 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 and Matt's still like, nah. So I am convincing, trying to convince, trying to convince Matt. But what I haven't done is paired that point of view, that advocacy, with an inquiry to find out why is Matt saying, nah, because maybe Matt has a good reason. So the um, algorithm that I'm proposing to you here is used in a variety of domains, feedback, debriefing, negotiation. And the simple way to think about this is, in these um, autonomy negotiations, first of all, you're going to mark that, that, that they're happening. So you're going to be like, hey, pause. This is socially abnormal, by the way, to call out anything process-wise in conversation, so I just want to highlight that I'm asking to do something socially abnormal. <laughs> so pause and check in. Hey, can I check in with you about the plan? So that just is a signpost. And what I talked about with Kathy last night and talked about with my PD uh, uh, program director colleagues at MGH is just marking that we're having these negotiations can kind of change them a little. So you do take nothing else from this workshop. Just thinking about marking that you're in a negotiation may help. Then what you're going to do is you're going to say what you hear them saying and what you think about it. So Jessica might say, hey, Sam, listen, I hear you saying that we should manage the patient like this, but I think I'd love a chance to just try to noodle this out a little bit. There might be three or four different ways. Can I try one out on you? So I think it'd be valuable for me to do that. And um, then just jump down here and try to give it a try. So. Option one for you to try in a moment is pause and check in. Say what you, pretending that you're either Jess or Sam, say what you heard, say what you think about it, and offer to collaborate. Another thing for you to try if you prefer, and if you feel like you have 10 or 15 more seconds in real life, is you can say, hey, I heard you giving me the plan, Sam. I'm thinking I'd love to have a go at it, but maybe there's a reason you're telling me right now. Um, can you tell me what's on your mind? So. That's this. I'm going to give Sam my attending the benefit of the doubt, find out why is she telling me the plan right now. And Sam might say, oh my God, just a habit, sorry. You go. Or Sam might be like, we have this following urgent rush and that's why. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to use this script. And by the way, the article that Keith was kind enough to mention in JAMA Pediatrics that I'm part of that was led really by Adam Chang, I played a very, very small role in it. But what we did there was created scripts for novice ACLS debriefers. And so the use of scripts in new conversations is gaining ground in a variety of areas, including uh, the course Anki Talk, which many of you may be aware of. So this is a way for you to try it out. You don't have to carry this around with you in the hospital, though you could. Um, so if you would ask, get one person in your trio to be Jess and one to be Sam and try this out on each other, Whoever is playing the receiver, you're going to invent some backstory and share it with the, with the person who's asking and then try to come up with a collaboration. 
and then we'll wrap up the workshop. something like this with her, if you said this, 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 and this, and she then puts it back on you, like, you need to go to EAP, I would just document, and then I would go to EAP, or I would go to, well, I would go to HR, if you wish, I mean, so I, you guys know the politics here, I don't want to advocate for doing something and say to your career, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so she may need to follow up and find out what her frame is, but there may be a point at which this is, you know, not the problem. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, uh, you rode right here, actually. Yeah, yeah. Do you know Brianna Parker? I rode with her in college. No way. No way. No. 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 That is no. Um, may I ask how old you are? I'm yeah, so she, about 20 years after my time. So, uh, I'd like to uh, take our last like to take our last few minutes here and get any reactions, comments, uh, takeaways. One thing that Sid and I and Keith were just talking about is that it is I'm not going to say this quite right. It's really hard as a resident to come to Sam and say. Can you hold for a second and what's your plan? Or tell me about what you're thinking. It's, it takes a lot of confidence for a resident to interrupt their attending yeah. um, to be able to say that. Yeah, so I didn't. Can I check in with you yeah. plan, Sam? Because I had something different in mind. That takes a lot of self confidence. Yes, and uh, uh, attendings in the room, the research on this, which it's a form of speaking up when they do that is the biggest predictor of whether people speak up is whether they're invited to and then be how you respond when they do. So if we do like this idea, then it would be incumbent on the attendings first to say, hey guys, I'm really interested in strengthening how we do these 
uh, autonomy negotiations or making plans together, please speak up to me. And then when they do, or please let me know you're, that you want to. And then when they do, saying thank you and working with them. I, th I think we have to reinforce that strongly from a faculty perspective, such that you mentioned, mentioned something, or Kathy mentioned something earlier. Our size is something we tout as our greatest strength, but there are weaknesses in that there's a, there are frequent interactions between residents and faculty to the point that we know each other well or think we know each other well. So we can lapse very quickly into a presumption of knowing what the attending is going to ask from us or say to us or how much a particular attending is going to want us as residents. And this dates back to the time when I was calling Alan Rizicki or Alan didn't want us to call, whatever. Um, <laughs> you sort of knew who to call, who not to call, yeah. who you were going to give a plan to, and that stifled it. I mean, I think it, would require, it requires an explicit decision on us as a faculty to make that statement that you say at the beginning of every interaction. Hey, don't assume that we know each other, but don't assume we know each other or yeah. our preferences or our biases. Because we do, we easily lapse into that. Well, so this might be a place where ceremonial approach or, or, or routine-driven or algorithm approach to possibly work. So I know you have a way that you take a history, for example, and you occasionally have to shortcut that, but if you shortcut it, sometimes not good things happen. So what I've noticed with this work is, um, you know, I get judgy just like the next person, and I have found that I have to, like, literally just reset myself and say, oh, my God, I'm going to do an advocacy inquiry thing, <laughs> even though I think that person is an idiot. Uh, but I'm going to assume the best of them temporarily, and I do it, and then they say something amazing, and I'm like, wow, thank God I did that. So I'm wondering whether there's a little bit of beginner's mind or whatever metaphor of resetting and, and inquiring or inviting. Um. I think we also have to recognize that there's an intrinsic power differential, just as there is with patient and, and, and clinician. Um, and therefore, it, it's really incumbent on the attending to be the responsible party, which to me means it's a faculty development um, issue. And if we teach our attendees, we teach ourselves, to always ask, what is your plan and why? Mm -hmm. um, or whatever language it is. It, it, that's, that's our job to ask that question, and then that becomes the culture. Yes, and because of the long culture of pimping, part of what I think we have to do is put a little something in front of that, like, hey, Jessica, I think it would be helpful if I understood what you're thinking is so far, and then we can work on it together. And then your question, what's your plan? Because I think if Jessica doesn't know the intent, she's likely to think, I'm being tested, and I might screw it up. Um, I'm aware of the time, Keith, so I don't know what our... Yeah, I think, so, I think those who are... Kathy, yeah, I think those so, who want to yeah. come down, is there any other sessions? Yeah, so uh, just to invite you all to noon conference today because we're going to be doing a little bit of a deeper dive um, with this with the residents and faculty who can attend, so I really encourage you to join us. Um, she has her Twitter handle up there. Just to let you know, we now have Keith tweets on Grand Round, and we have an official pediatrician in the back, Senda also are going to be our official tweet attrition, so she's been live tweeting this event as well. So <laughs> encourage those of you with more social media presence than me to get on. <laughs>